0: New Books and Biography. I'm Olai Eaton Today I'm going to be talking with Ingrid Karlberg about her new book, Raoul Wallenberg, The Heroic Life and Mysterious Disappearance of the Man Who Saved Thousands of Hungarian Jews from the Holocaust. The winner of the August Prize for Nonfiction, the Axel Hirsch Prize for Biography, it was recently published this past March in English. Hi, Ingrid. Thank you so much. New books and biography. I'm Olein Eaton. Today I'm going to be talking with Ingrid Karlberg about her new book, Raul Wallenberg The Heroic Life and Mysterious Disappearance of the Man Who Saved Thousands of Hungarian Jews from the Holocaust. The winner of the August Prize for Nonfiction, the Axel Hirsch Prize for Biography, it was recently published this past March in English. Hi, Ingrid. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
2: Well, my name is Ingrid Kaldai. I I live in Sweden. Uh, I'm the author of several nonfiction books. I've been a journalist in Sweden uh, for 20 years, uh, uh, employed uh, by the largest Swedish morning paper, Dagens Nyheter, And I am also honorary doctor at Uppsala University in Sweden. Um,
0: So we biographers wind up spending a lot of time with the people that we're writing about. And I wonder, how did you first hear about Raoul Wallenberg and what drew you to him as a biographical subject?
2: Being a Swede, uh, of course, uh, uh, the name Raoul Wallenberg was familiar to me. But I was struck uh, A few years ago, or at least seven years ago, I was struck by the fact that there was certain silence around Raoul Wallenberg in Sweden, uh, and that no one actually had done, uh, had uh, produced uh, an ambitious, uh, uh, the ambitious story on his life for a Swedish audience. There are not so many books written by Swedish authors about Rovaniemi. There are. I discovered that there were actually more books written about Rovaniemi by foreign authors. Oh, wow. that, uh, you get the impression that the interest might be even greater abroad, hmm. uh, and that has several several uh, uh, explanations. Because in Sweden we have a, um, we have a, put a lot of attention to. The post-war drama that surrounds Raoul Wallenberg, and throughout the years, not so much attention to what he really did in uh, Budapest in the middle of, in in the end of uh, World War II, when he, uh, uh, during uh, a period of six months, uh, was uh, one of those active diplomats who managed to save tens. Of thousands of Hungarian Jews mm-hmm. uh, so there, there has been a, a I would say due to the fact that uh, Raúl Wallenberg the person in my book uh, was uh, not only a hero during World War II but ended up uh, was not only a hero during World War II fighting against one of the world's uh, uh, most uh, terrible tyrannies ever, the Nazi, Ge- Nazi Germany, he ended up disappearing and being a victim of another, of the other uh, disastrous tyrannies the world knows about during the uh, 20th century, uh, I mean uh, the uh, Stalin's Soviet Union. Uh, and given the fact that Ralph well, Wallenberg uh, Disappeared and never returned to Sweden again. Uh, I would say that uh, there are a certain amount of shame, political shame, when it comes to the Swedish dealing with the Raoul Wallenberg case in Sweden, and uh, a very well motivated uh, political shame because uh, Sweden could have done a lot more to 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 have him freed from. Uh, his prison life in Soviet Union mm-hmm. uh, and all this resulted in uh, the fact that uh, Raoul Wallenberg was in a way buried into a silence in Sweden and I wanted just to to tell his story, to, to learn him as a person, to, to get to know him as a person to try to, we don't know so much about him who who was Raoul Wallenberg before he left for Budapest to start with uh, so I decided to, to throw myself into a huge research project that hasn't been done in Sweden, to dig in all the archives, try to get, get close to the person, Raoul Wallenberg, to what he really did in, in Budapest, behind the uh, uh And finally, to reveal the whole uh, tragic post-war story uh, that... Uh, Actually, isn't really solved, not uh, not yet really solved. Uh, but to, to, to put into to the public mind, what Sweden, uh, what, what the the diplomatic failures that Sweden, uh, or I, I would I would rather put it as the, the Swedish diplomatic betrayal of Raoul Wallenberg. How this took place.
0: So, for listeners who have no idea who we're talking about, could you just give us a quick overview of who he was?
2: Yeah, he was. Uh, uh, he was born in 1912. Uh, he was. Uh, he's often portrayed by those who know him, <laughs> and know about him as uh, the heir of a Swedish business dynasty, the, which is still a Swedish business dynasty today. That is uh, linked to the Wallenberg family. Um, They are the owner of a a, um, a, a bank in Sweden, and and linked to this bank, a lot of of, uh, companies. So it's a huge uh, business uh, dynasty. He was not. He was, um, you could say, quite uh, distant to this rich family. Uh, So his future was not decided to be uh, within the family empire. He was thus uh, trying to to make his way uh, outside uh, in the Swedish business life. So at the time in 1944, when he was appointed uh, to the position in Budapest, uh, he was a businessman importing uh, food, Hungary mainly poultry like Turkish and uh, uh, other poultry (laughs) and uh, (laughs) and uh, but he also he has a very peculiar uh, background because he had been studying abroad which not many people know about he had been uh, studying in the United States for three and a half years studying architecture he was uh, interested in architecture and was, had a great artistic talent. So, uh, uh, But his he, he, main purpose in life was to, to succeed in business. So he was a businessman. Uh, but during the war, and especially in 1944, when uh, Germany occupied Hungary, suddenly uh, the disastrous uh, Humanitarian catastrophe. The the Holocaust came very close to Raul Wallenberg because he uh, worked with a Hungarian. His boss at this Hungarian import-export firm was of uh, Hungarian origin, and he was also Jewish. So suddenly, uh, the problem, uh, the, the 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 mass deportations that came uh, that took place very soon after this. Uh, Uh, the the German invasion of Hungary became a very urgent matter for Raoul Wallenberg in his uh, everyday life. Uh, And he ended up, since he had this uh, experience, he had been to Budapest several times, and when the the American War Refugee Board uh, searched for um, collaboration with neutral states in a very hastily decided rescue missions for Hungarian Jews in Hungary. Uh, Raoul Wallenberg ended up being uh, the one who volunteered to take this position to go to go down to Budapest and uh, administer this Swedish-Hungarian rescue mission. So he was appointed the second uh, second secretary at the Swedish legation. Uh, And suddenly uh, became a diplomat without any diplomatic experience whatsoever. But his his main mission was to administer this rescue mission with money from the United States and and the diplomatic formal position from Sweden. And that's what he did during six months. And after, when the Russians came to Budapest, uh, arrived, Russian troops arrived in Budapest in January 1945. He believed that he could seek collaboration with the the Soviet army in rescuing two ghettos in Budapest. Uh, But he made a misjudgment there. Uh, He voluntarily seeked contact with them, but he ended up arrested And he was taken to Lubyanka prison in Moscow and uh, ended up imprisoned. We know that he stayed, he was alive for two and a half years. But uh, during which time he might have been released, of course, but he never came back to Sweden. So his destiny, we still don't know exactly what happened to him. Mm -hmm.
0: So this brings up an interesting point, that gaps are, are a special challenge to a biographer. So how do you deal with that? Because um, here you've got a story with an unclear ending, but were there also any other especially perplexing points in the story of his life that um, that you sort of struggled to fill or figure out what happened?
2: Yeah, there, there were a lot of gaps uh, in his life, not only the period after he disappeared. Uh, I tried to Reconstruct, you know, you, you, you try to find all possible archives that could shade light or give uh, light uh, on certain periods. And there was a problematic period, I remember, from uh, uh, like the seven years before he left. Uh, when he was still abroad studying, he wrote a lot of letters. So you got his personal, personal descriptions of... His stay in the United States, for example, or even during his childhood, there were a lot of, of letters written. But when he returned to Stockholm in the, the end of the 30s, he ended his letter writing because all his relatives were in Sweden. <laughs> uh, and to, um, it had, before I wrote this book, been quite unclear what his, both his personal life before he left and his uh, professional life, his sister, his half-sister, 95 years old, is still alive and was, uh, of course, also when I wrote the book. So I started by uh, by uh,
1: um,
2: visiting her for lengthy interviews, two hours every second week. She was old, so we couldn't talk longer than two hours every time. Uh, but she told me that I don't know enough uh, when it comes to his professional life and I have memories from his personal life, of course, when he came back to Sweden, but uh, not not enough. <laughs> and then she told me, I think you should call his cousin. He's 100 years old, but please do. And I told myself, you don't call a person who's 100 years old. <laughs> so I, I, I remember that I waited. I hesitated for a couple of weeks, and then I started to try to find a relative who could... Uh, tell me how to to uh, move forward. When I finally found the relative to this 100-year-old cousin, he said, oh, Leonard, that was his name, just call him. <laughs> and then I <laughs> called the, the 100-year-old Lennart, and Leonard said, oh, well, uh, let's see, next week, Wednesday, could you come in the morning? Because in the afternoon, I have a meeting in town. <laughs> And then I went to to Lennart and he could he had a kept for all his life uh, a certain amount of letters uh, between him and Raoul Wallenberg, photos from their uh, weekends out with his sailing boat in the Stockholm archipelago. Oh, wow. And he had decided, I am 100 years old. This seems to be a serious woman. So he allowed me to uh, scan all this and I could uh, better than before fill gaps during that period. So that is just an example. Mm -hmm. Uh, You need to be lucky, uh, but you also need to, to work hard and follow every trace to fill those gaps.
0: Yeah this is really one of the joys about working in in fairly recent history, is that there are still people who who you can interview. Um, And that's such an enriching project, I find, to the work that we can produce, is is speaking to people who have memories of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: But uh, still, I I always blame myself for not uh, having this idea earlier. Yeah. (laughs) When, you know, I I, uh, started to my research on this book in 2009 and uh, I think one month before uh, I was I I, uh, learned about the death of Raoul Wallenberg's Mm half-brother and I didn't, I hadn't yet been in contact with him. I uh, contacted, I phoned him as I understand uh, nearly the same day as he died Mm -hmm. And then you start to question, why has no one done this on, in depth from a Swedish perspective? Uh, because it's only if you live in the country and if you speak the language that you can, you can uh, do the deep res- research that is necessary to depict uh, this in, in my person, Alva mm-hmm. Were
0: there any other sources that were especially helpful? Are there archives um, and institutions?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, private archives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used a lot of private archives, uh, the archives of uh, Raoul Wallenberg's closest family, his half-sister. Uh, they have also gathered a lot of, uh, of material in the Swedish National Archives on Raoul Wallenberg, a private archive on Raoul Wallenberg in Stockholm. You have, do, of course, have the, the whole huge Swedish Foreign Ministry Act on Raoul Wallenberg and his disappearance. You have the telegraph between Sweden and Budapest uh, when it comes to the the rescue mission. Uh, You have um, the most, you have the Russian archives. Um, There were, we had a period in the beginning of the 90s when uh, after Glasnost, when Soviet Union later Russia, which was transformed to Russia during this period, when they decided to open their archives, not independently, but they decided to release a certain amount of documents uh, as a result of the Glasnost mm-hmm. trying to close the case of Raoul which has been a deep political wound as well as a, a diplomatic bilateral crisis between Sweden and Soviet Union for Today, 70 years, but at that time, uh, 50 years. Uh, So there were quite an interesting amount of documents released in the beginning of the 90s before the the Russian archives were closed again. Mm -hmm. And after that, we haven't really got anything new out of just some very small details, but no new documents of of importance from the Russian archives. But that... that, uh, pile of documents was also very important, of course. Mm-hmm. Finally, I would like to mention the discovery uh, of uh, uh, Raoul Wallenberg's stepfather. Uh, his own father died before he he uh, was born, mm-hmm. so he never met his own father. But he, he, when he was six years old, he his mother remarried, so he he lived. He grew grew up with a stepfather. Uh, and his name was Fredrik von Darden. he decided after a while to, to write a diary on the search for Rauvannanberg. Uh,
1: oh.
2: So all the, the, the all what the family did to try to get him released and their the problems to deal with the Swedish foreign ministry who was hesitant, too hesitant all the time, uh, is, uh, uh, you can follow that process in his extremely moving diaries. He had uh, added all outgoing, uh, all copies of outgoing and uh, incoming letters. So it's a huge archive, and it's uh, really a, if you want to depict this post-war drama, even from the the the, the family's private view, it's, uh, it that that was really uh, something. Mm-hmm.
0: So, as we've mentioned, this is a story that has an unclear ending, and I wondered how did you deal with that specifically when you were trying to sort of shift the gaze forward into into the pre war life um and also that it's a story that's ongoing in some respects because there's still information coming. I think I saw that last week there was a filing of paperwork to have him declared legally dead um yeah yeah so how did how do you ma- how, the, the the various tensions there in the storytelling how did you deal with that
2: i I decided quite early that uh, I needed to depict his life story in the most thrilling way I know Mm -hmm. of, and that is of course the chronological. Uh, And I wanted to to do, I I, I have written a narrative, uh, which is, um, it can be read like uh, it's nonfiction, but it's storytelling. Mm -hmm. and i in the same way as at uh, same time as I wanted to write this story as as a um it can be read as a thriller, you could say so but but every everything is based on facts, so I have a footnote to every claim I make if I write that he suddenly hesitated then i I know that from something he has written in a letter, so I was very keen to go very very close to to facts, not to you know. Uh, create dialogues, etc. Uh, and when I, I decided to write this story chronologically, I had that problem you mentioned. How do I deal with this unclear ending? How do I deal with the facts that have come later on when I do depict the very moment? Uh, and, and I could then just tell you that... Uh, the traces from Raoul Wallenberg ends in 1947. Uh, we know today that uh, he lived up up until 1947, but we don't know, uh, and there are claims from the Russian side that he uh, that came later on in 1957. They they for the first time uh, admitted that Raoul Wallenberg had been in a Soviet prison. Up until then, they didn't admit. That Raoul Wallenberg even was known to them. Uh, so I had to deal with the fact that uh, when I write about 1947, I know that he. I know what the truth, the 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 claim that will come in ten years. But how do I, how do I write about it then? Uh, and I decided never to lose track on the chronological. Uh, uh, what to say? The pace, mm-hmm. but to to add known facts from later on uh, to the uh, to the story that made it possible for me, for example, to to write about his life in prison. Mm-hmm. Although in 1947 we didn't know that, but we know it from from uh, later. I don't know if this is an answer to your question, but yes, no, it is, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I when I came to the very date of the seventieth july nineteen forty seven when the Russians still today claim that it's by the natural death i I just took out the facts that were uh, undisputable mm-hmm. so what do we know and then I wrote the story on the facts we know, and I also chose to to uh, uh, in my book, to add between the chronological chapters, some uh, I could call it more journalistic pieces, uh, where I, I do uh, I depict uh, my research and my my meetings in uh, short uh, short passages in present time. And I could also deal a bit with uh, what later happened in those, uh, those short passages between the chronological story. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to, to create a tension there so, so it would be clear for the reader. You are the one to decide if I managed.
0: <laughs> no, that was actually, this is going to be my next question, was about the structure of the book. And in particular, how it's divided into the three parts um, with the questions, what makes a person, what makes an act heroic and what determines a person's fate. And then also the insertion of the passages in the present day, which I thought were really cool. But I was curious hey, how, you, how you came to settle here. upon this as a way to tell the story.
2: Confronted with this huge perspective of, of depicting uh, such a, a long period, I wanted to, to tell the story from his birth up until today. I was faced with the the question on how to structure it, of course. And I realized after a while uh, that I wanted to, to write the book in three parts, uh, which is not that... Sensational, <laughs> not such a sensational idea, maybe, but that i I would uh, divide uh, the story into three parts of equal size uh, when it came to pages and how, uh, length of the story in my book, so basically, if it's a book on uh, it's about six hundred pages, then you, uh, I would devote two hundred pages to each part. And uh, the first part I decided would ask the question, what makes a person? Because to understand wh- who the person Rao Wallenberg was in Budapest in 1944, you need to follow him, what created him, what kind of details in his life decided the kind of personality he was, which made it possible for him to, to do what he did in Budapest. Mm-hmm. And I decided that this must be the first part up until his departure for Budapest. What makes a a person? And this part thus uh, covers 31 and a half, or 32 years, basically. Mm -hmm. So he was very young. He was only 32 years during this uh, six months in Budapest, which which you don't really realize. Uh, And then the second part, that I decided to, to cover his period in Budapest in that part and ask and, and address the part. I, I, I also decided to address the part with each part with a question. So the first question was, what makes a person? The second question I raised for myself was, what makes an act heroic? Well, what is an heroic act? Uh, and that is where I tried to go behind the myth in budapest and this uh, part of the book covers only six months but it's 200 pages so it's the drama in budapest uh, and where i try to to understand what kind of heroism uh, what was the kind of heroism that that was Raoul wallenberg's uh or, or Ralph wallenberg's deeds in uh, budapest um uh, And it's a chronological story on what happened and and the the actions that he did and did not do, etc., etc. And then the the third part had to be the post-war story, the story after his disappearance. And that part is also 200 pages long, but it covers uh, like uh, 70 years. Mm -hmm. So uh and the question i raised there is uh, what determines a person's fate.
0: So did you start with the the research with these questions already in mind?
2: No, they mm-hmm. came uh, uh they came after a while okay. when i started to think about the structure. Mm-hmm. And i realized uh i i realized that i to myself uh when i did the research these were the questions that uh, made me move forward. Right. Mm-hmm. To start with the question, who he really was, mm-hmm. uh, what makes a person, all the kind of details in, in the life that that uh, um, uh, implicates or, or that uh, influence you uh, and that creates the, the kind of uh, kind of grown up personality and i think there are there were a lot of things in his background that created the, the personality he mm-hmm. was um so so I, I suddenly one day i said that these questions that I, they, I i that i asked myself my own main questions must be the three parts of the book mm-hmm.
0: it's a it's a really great organizational structure it's really it makes it really interesting um so what do you
2: see as his legacy i think it's in a way, it's not the kind of legacy that is usually uh, linked to Raoul Wallenberg. it's often said that Wallenberg, about Raoul Wallenberg, that one person can make a difference, and that is true. He was, in a way, it's true, but it's not his legacy to me, uh, because what he did in, in uh, when he came to Budapest uh, was to show uh, the strength of collective work. He was an organizer. He built an organization that was very well-functioning in Budapest during these chaotic circumstances. In the end, he had 350 persons employed, and he also collaborated with other neutral diplomats in an, an effort uh, that mainly the, has as its heroic continence this uh, collaboration and this collective uh, uh, and uh bureaucratic triumph. You could say that he managed to to confront uh Eichmann's uh evil bureaucracy with a bureaucracy of good. So he dealt uh the way he dealt with the situation, the way he way he organized uh, uh his rescue efforts, uh the way he showed that uh the when uh, the tense or 10th Tens of thousands of uh, people are fleeing from absolute evil when at, at this point you cannot uh, stay with uh, political talks or negotiations. You have to act to organize and deliver help for people on site. He decided, he he, he demonstrated that in a very clear uh, ma- manner. And I think that Today, when you, you view upon what's happening today in the largest refugee crisis we have since World War II, this is exactly what lacks. We have a lot of, of political declarations, we have a lot of roundtables and long discussions and strange political decisions, but this, this uh, ability to act, to organize, is, is not that impressive.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for calling me.
0: I've been listening to an interview with Ingrid Carlberg about her new book Raoul Wallenberg, the heroic life and mysterious disappearance of the man who saved thousands of Hungarian Jews from the Holocaust. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.